You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. We're going to spend two weeks in Acts 20. And it's interesting. Brett and I talk a lot about getting ready two, three weeks out. Hey, what are you going to be speaking on? What's the title? And this title changed, I think, three or four times, at least. And so I wound up with a two-part series in Acts 20, The Disciple-Making Church. And so this is Great Commission stuff. This is Jesus saying, hey, go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. How do you do that? Baptizing. That's coming this Easter. And teaching everything that I've uh, taught you. And though I'm with you always. So it's really about the Great Commission the next two weeks and uh, hopefully encouraging. Um, One of the great influencers in the 20th century is a gal named Henrietta C. Mears. Uh, Let me ask you a question. I do this periodically and I'm always a little bit embarrassed. Anybody know Henrietta C. Mears? Ellen does. Way to go, honey. (laughs) Me and you. So you got to get to know Henrietta C. Mears. Here's why. And, and folks, I could spend 15 minutes telling her story because her influence in the 20th century, in my humble opinion, was one of the greatest influencers. So backstory, she uh, was in Minneapolis serving at a church, First Baptist downtown. She's on vacation at Hollywood Presbyterian Church in California, and she gets invited to lead their Sunday school department. She says yes. She starts in that ministry. We're talking mid-40s now. There's about 200 in Sunday school. It grew to 4,000 under her leadership. This is mid-40s. This is a mega church today with 4,000. Just imagine the enormity. But her greatest touch, in my opinion, was the individuals she influenced. I'm just going to highlight three or four out of 30 or 40, and I'm serious about the 30 or 40. So I hope you know who Bill and uh, Vanette uh, Bright are, right? Campus Crusade for Christ? Tell me you know who these guys are. Largest mission organization in the world, 25,000 servants, 191 countries, 10 years. Uh, Henrietta C. Mears mentored this dear couple. 10 years. Let's keep moving. Dawson Trotman, do you know that name? Founder of the Navigators, 5,000 missionaries globally in universities, discipling college students. An incredible ministry. How many of you love the ministry known as uh, Young Life? Yay, there's two. And, and the Krugs, right? You guys are Young Life fans. Um, I had the director of Young Life uh, in our church when I was a youth pastor. And so I got influenced. Our students got influenced through Young Life. Henrietta Mears impacted Jim Rayburn's life through mentoring, through discipleship. And again, the list could go on and on. She rose early every day, 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. She committed three hours a day to writing Sunday school curriculum. It's called Gospel Light. Again, when I was a youth pastor, I used Henrietta's material. It was transformational. However, 
her probably uh, greatest thing she's known for, she had a heart for evangelism, a heart for revivalism. And so this is kind of the late 40s now, and there's this thing happening called crusade evangelism. So she says, let's do it. Hollywood, California, she calls a good friend back in Minnesota. His name is Billy Graham. He was president of uh, Northwestern University at the time. Billy Graham comes out and does a week long of ministry. God works powerfully. Billy Graham's evangelistic crusade ministry got launched through the invitation of Henrietta C. Mears out in California. Folks, the list goes on and on for her influence. One gal. And we're feeling the ripple effect today in the kingdom of God globally through her influence. So if I could sum up Henrietta's life, it's two words. Disciple maker. I believe that with all my heart. And I hope for the next two weeks you'll be inspired to follow after her example, to follow after the Apostle Paul's example, the early church leaders' examples, to be disciple makers. So we're talking about a disciple-making church, but it's very, very personal this morning. And so uh, I want to encourage you again, Acts 20. Hopefully you have your Bibles. And I want to go back as we go forward. We were in Ephesus uh, last week, remember? It really got hard. Paul's preaching, and man, they just wanted to rip this guy to smithereens in an amphitheater with 25,000 people. Fortunately, he didn't go. He got rescued, and, and literally, he, he, he takes off. But here's a statement in Acts 19. All of Asia heard the gospel through Paul and his team as they spent two years there. All of Asia. Now, you might wonder, what does that mean? Well, let me show you what it means. This is modern-day Turkey, but if you're familiar with Revelation 2 and 3, there's seven churches that Jesus comes to and he does an examination with. Paul planted these churches while he was in Ephesus. You can go to that part of the world today and see all the remains, the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. All of Asia heard the gospel. But friends, the gospel is much broader than hearing the good news, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, coming to genuine faith. The gospel is being transformed all the day of your life and living in a manner worthy of the gospel to hear one day Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so we're going to move out from Ephesus, remember? Because they almost toured the smithereens and it was time to leave after two years of ministry. So track with me. And if you have your uh, connect card, here's the blessing this morning. And it goes back to Christ, right? Paul is only following in the footsteps of his Lord and Savior. But because of the mandate of Christ, Westwood Church must prioritize being a disciple-making church. And so corporately but also individually. So the application so clear. Parents to kids, spouses to each other, you know, working in our life groups, our sphere of influence, we have the privilege to influence one another for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at 16 verses today, and then hopefully next week we'll uh, uh, get through the rest of the chapter, but it's all about disciple making. So three priorities. Priority number one, Disciple-making churches prioritize, and I love this, encouragement in Christ. Encouragement in Christ. Now, two things about encouragement. Number one, encouragement through physical presence. Remember we talk about time, treasure, talent, and 
touch. This is what we're going to look at right now. This is Paul and his team touching people through physical presence. So Acts 20 verse 1. After the uproar, we already talked about that. That was in the Ephesus theater, was over. Paul sent for the disciples. And notice this next phrase. I mean, this is a guy basically who's getting run out of Dodge, who's, who could have been torn to smither, smithereens. I mean, he didn't flee. He gathers the disciples and encouraged them. After saying goodbye, departed to go to Macedonia. Every now and then, there's a word in the Greek language that really means a lot, and it's just a special word. This is one of them. The Greek word is parakaleo. Please get to know that word because it's profound. It not only relates to us encouraging each other, it talks about the encouragement of God in Scripture. So it's a compound word, para, uh, alongside kaleo, call. Here's what an encourager does. An encourager is called to come alongside and do what? Give courage to people. To infuse them with the strength and love and power of God. To keep running the race. To finish well. That's what encouragement means. But you know what's beautiful about the word parakaleo? It's used of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in John 14 and 16 is called the paraclete. What does that mean? God, the Holy Spirit, comes alongside us supernaturally to give us courage in this faith journey. What a beautiful picture. So let me show you a few verses about this physical touch. I'm going to take you back a little bit in Acts, uh, Acts 15.36. Paul says this. This was after the first missionary journey. After some time passed, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, let's go back and do what? Visit the brothers in every town where we have preached the message of the Lord and see how they're doing. That's touch. Hey, we planted churches. We built relationships. Let's go back and hang out. Let's have coffee. I think they drank coffee back then. What would they have drunk a couple thousand years ago? Probably wine. No, not the missionary team. So they're going back, they're visiting, they're hanging out, they're spending time. Now look at Acts 15, 40 through 41. He traveled through Syria and Cilicia, and I love this phrase, strengthening the churches, building them up in the most holy faith. Continuing on, Acts 16. As they traveled through the towns, they delivered decisions reached by the apostles, remember Acts 15, and elders regarding circumcision and so forth at Jerusalem for them to observe. And notice this, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. So when you're an encourager, when you're a paraclete, when you're coming alongside, you're giving courage, you're strengthening the body of Christ to do what? Press on. Finish well. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. But it comes, folks, through physical presence. I believe this with all my heart. When you think about disciple making, it starts with just being there. Forget about content and counseling and curriculum. It starts with physical presence. We say this all the time in leadership. Leadership is present. You can't lead without being present. And same as an encourager. Five years ago this summer, My mom was in a devastating accident. Some of you know about that. She's 82 years old at the time. She'd been a widow over 20 years. And she's driving a road she'd been on many, many times. She got T-boned. Her car was totaled. Flew right off the highway. Airbags deployed. 
her neck was broke. And uh, nine ribs, bruised head to toe, wondered if mom would live. I'm a thousand miles away in Minnesota. My older brother's in Florida, and Dennis, they couldn't get a hold of. So mom goes to the hospital, rushed. I mean, this was, this was tragic. She, didn't, she woke up, didn't know what happened to her, but of course, necks broke, bodies bruised, ribs. And there's two men by her side. Two men. Pastor Josh from my home church and Eric Farley. Two men showed up, and when she woke up in severe pain after a very serious accident, almost died, my pastor from my home church and one of the leaders there was present. We were with Eric Farley over the holidays, uh, Christmas. We had dinner with him. And when I look across that dinner table and I see Eric today, oh man, my heart is so warmed, so appreciative, so thankful. I've been gone pretty much my whole married life in ministry and haven't been able to spend a lot of time with mom. But there were two leaders in the church in her greatest time of need, present. And I'll never forget them. I love those two men. My mom does. They're still in a very close relationship. Five years later, mom's doing pretty good. And uh, she's been here. If you've met my mom, 100 pounds soaking wet. But man, she is ready to take on the world, you know. So, all right. Now, leadership is present. We have some cool things happening in our children's ministry. Did you hear the uh, hallelujah chairs from the, from the kids? You know, it's just our space. But I tell you something, I like that. A noisy, catalytic, alive children's ministry. And so good things are happening in our children's ministry right now. But with good things happening, our crawlers, uh, I think that's to like, is that to 18 months? Two years? Yeah. It's bursting at the seams. But you know what you do in crawlers ministry? You crawl. That's all you have to do. The job description is crawl. So you go into the crawler's ministry, you get down on your hands and knees, and you crawl. So every now and then, I'll just like go back there, say hello to the kids' workers, hang out, see what's going on. And it is fun to see gentlemen like elders, like Greg Argenbright, crawling. You do that, don't you, Greg? And you like it, right? And I think they love you. <laughs> I do know. I do know. So can I put out a loving appeal? We would love for you to pray through, seriously consider helping our children's ministry, Chelsea. Gasprey's doing a wonderful job just once a month. Get back there in the crawler's room. Uh, because the space is limited, we're even shifting our space around to accommodate that beautiful ministry. Now, help me out, children's workers. What's the next group that comes from two to five, which is? Preschool. I'm glad I don't know nothing about children's ministry. <laughs> I should write these things down. So they need help too. So Chelsea's going to be present right at the tail end of the service. And I tell you something. You know, if, if I had a Sunday off, I'd love to go back there and hang out. Uh, just to serve and bless and be a part of what God's doing. But those ministries, really, it's not high teaching, all that stuff. It's just being present and nurturing those little lives. Now, secondly, and this is really cool, um, so you encourage through presence, you encourage through 
physical presence and then written presence. And folks, this is a really cool thing that, that goes down here. Let me show you that in verse 2. And when they had passed through those areas, this is Macedonia. What are the areas? We're talking Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens. Passed through the areas where the churches were planted. Notice what happens. And exhorted them at length. It's real interesting. The same root word is there. Uh, Parakaleo. But there's an exhortation component. There is a teaching component, a preaching component. But I want to take it one step further. There is a writing component that's going down here. And so they passed through, uh, strengthened that at length. He came to Greece and stayed there um, three months. So why do I say uh, written presence? Here's what's happening now. On the second and third missionary journey... Paul's starting to write the church's letters. To do what? Encourage them. Exhort them to build them up in the most holy faith. In Ephesus, we know this for sure, he wrote 1 Corinthians. How many of you are familiar with 1 Corinthians? Soft letter or hard letter? It's probably one of the hardest in the New Testament. And guys, Paul really goes after some things. He was just sad. He was brokenhearted. The things he was hearing in the church at Corinth. And by the way, he leaves Ephesus and he will be in Corinth soon. So he writes this letter to try to get the ball rolling on transformation. Don't be like this. And we'll talk about that at communion, 1 Corinthians 11 today. Uh, then he goes from Ephesus to Philippi. That's where he writes 2 Corinthians. We know that for sure. And so Philippi was a very endearing city, but guess what he does in 2 Corinthians? He's vulnerable. It's one of the most vulnerable books in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul. He's pouring out his heart. He's broken. Why? They're opposing his apostleship. They said, you don't have the credentials. You didn't hang out with Jesus like the other guys did. So he had to defend himself. And then if you read 2 Corinthians 12, you know what you hear? You hear about a man who suffered deeply for the gospel. And you know what his greatest heartache was? He says in 2 Corinthians 12, on top of all this physical suffering, being flogged, shipwrecked, imprisoned, beaten, ugh, a mess, he says, I have to care for the church. Paul's greatest burden was the care for the church. He was broken over some of the things that were happening in the New Testament church. Why? They're coming out of paganism. They're coming out of idolatry. They're coming out of sexual promiscuity. It was just a mess back then. And the list goes on and on. So he pours his heart out. Guess what happens when he gets to Corinth? Stays there three months, and he writes the great book of Romans. You know what's beautiful about writing Romans from Corinth? He had not yet been to Rome. He hadn't even seen the church in Rome. And yet he cares for the church so much. What does he do? In Corinth, he pens 16 chapters that have become the treaties for the gospel that has transformed people all across the world. Let me give you three pictures of lives that were impacted for the gospel. Here's a guy that you might want to be familiar with from history, Augustine of Hippo. And I won't go into the uh, details on Hippo, but know this, he lived a very promiscuous life. Uh, great thinker, philosopher, educator, and a divine appointment happened. 
Some children offered him the book of Romans and he read it. His life was changed. He came to faith in Christ. One of the greatest theologians history has known. He's written confessions worth reading, city of God worth reading. He just led the way in the early years. Let's fast forward. You're familiar with Methodism, right? John and Charles Wesley. This was at the heyday. This guy's, you know, uh, hearing a sermon, Aldersgate. It's on the book of Romans. The gospels preach, comes to faith in Christ. Two brothers lead the way, and the transformation through their ministry was enormous. Then, and this is my favorite one, Martin Luther. If you know Martin Luther's story, um, it's remarkable. He was the great reformer, led the way for so many things. But he believed in works. He was just trying to live out the law. And one day he's reading the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The just shall live by faith. Boom, aha moment, comes to faith in Christ, writes the 95 Thesis, nails it to Wittenberg door, and the Reformation gets launched. These are three individuals of millions who have been transformed by the book of Romans, written presence. And so Ephesus to Philippi to Corinth. So what's the application to us? I think there's two things, two things very clearly. Number one, our lives can be a fragrance of Christ. That's just the presence. Pastor Josh and Eric Farley will always be in my heart. When I was reviewing that story uh, this past week, I just wept. I said, Lord, thank you so much for those men who were there. They were a fragrance of Christ. They were present in, in one of my mom's greatest time of need, and they're still dear friends today. The second thing is, in the presence, bring the word of God, right? So if you're going to a hospital like that, bring the comfort of God through the word of God. Break open a psalm that, you know, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Know the Bible enough to bring the, the written presence to people in need, to give them courage to press on. Now, one of the things that we provided for you as we lead up to Easter Talk about written presence. This is a pamphlet I titled the Via Della Rosa. This is a actual path in Israel that I've been on numerous times. It's called the Way of Suffering. And basically what you have here is you have a chronology for 23 days starting today that'll take you all the way up to Easter. It's a chronology of what happens step by step to get you to Easter. Most people struggle to put the four Gospels together. I do too. And so there's folks who work hard at this. This is very accurate, very beautiful. You need some special devotional just to kind of take you to Easter, to celebrate, be prepared. Check that out. We have them at the back. Some of you got those coming in. I promise you it will be a beautiful study. And so... Priority number one, encouragement through physical and then written encouragement. Let's go to priority number two. Disciple-making churches prioritize unity in the body of Christ. Where do I get this? Look at verses three through six. When he was about to set sail for Syria, a plot was devised against him by Jews. So a decision was made to go back through Macedonia. So we spent three months 
in Corinth, in Greece area. He was going to head to Palestine, Israel, to Syria. He heard, oh no, <laughs> they're coming again. And he goes back through Macedonia. This is Berea, Athens, Philippi, Thessalonica, and so forth. He was accompanied, and this is where it gets a little bit um, interesting to me. Notice his team. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pius, from Berea. Who knows if I pronounce that right? Who cares, right? Um, how about this guy? Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica. Gaius from Derby. Timothy and Tychicus and Prophemus from Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us. Notice where? Troas. But sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. In five days we reached them at Troas, where we spent seven days. Now, in, in just devotional reading, you would read that and say, oh, that's cool. Paul had some friends and he did ministry. Folks, Luke is detailed for a reason, as we're going to see in this passage. And the question I have to ask is, why all these details? Individuals and geographical details. So here's what Luke does. He lists nine team members by name, and that would include Luke, because Luke is writing in the first person. And they're traveling from three different regions where Paul planted churches. So here's two things I believe Luke wants to showcase. Number one, unity through team diversity. We have individuals that are coming from Galatia, Asia, and Macedonia. And I think we have a map this is just remarkable to me. So his team is broad. His team is eclectic. Remember, the gospel is a gospel for all people, right? From Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Paul's got teammates from all these areas, and now they're traveling back together. But here's the key. They're on a mission. You don't see that in this passage, but when you read the letters he wrote, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Romans, guess what? You find that this is a mission trip. What is the mission trip? Let me show you the mission trip. Paul in Romans writes from the city of Corinth, chapter 15, he says this. He says, right now, I'm traveling to Jerusalem to serve the saints for Macedonia and Achaia. We're pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So what's the mission? The church in Jerusalem was experiencing famine. This is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. The Macedonian churches became examples of generosity through their poverty. And he says to the Corinthian churches, follow the Macedonians' example. So Paul's traveling right now with a lot of money. He's on a mission. Where is he heading? To Jerusalem to care for the church. What's Luke's point? Unity and diversity. The Jewish church in Jerusalem is now being connected to the Gentile church that's all pushed out west. This is Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We're all one in Christ. And friends, I know it's hard sometimes to put it together, so you just have to know what's going on in, in the writing of the, the epistles, what the contents were. But this is a mission trip. And they're doing it together. Why? When those Gentiles show up with a lot of shekels, guess what? The church is blessed through generosity, time, treasure, talent, and touch. And the church is unified, Jew and Greek. That's what's going on here. Secondly, unity through team accountability. And I don't believe I'm reading into this too much because one thing I've learned over the years about finances in the church, you better do it right. 
you just better. So thank God we have a finance team here. Pastor Jason leads the way as, as he oversees things to do it with integrity, with accountability, because things can really get off track sometimes in ministries if there's not financial accountability. So why the teams from the three different regions who contributed, they're all holding each other accountable. Yeah, we got three million shekels for the church in Jerusalem that's experiencing famine. And they gave it together and they signed off together. That's accountability. Paul would never, ever want to compromise the gospel by being second-guessed that he wasn't a man of integrity. Never wanted that to happen. And so they go together. They give the gifts together. Accountability is a gift, folks. It's a beautiful thing. One of my heroes, let's go back to Billy Graham, uh, 1949. Here's his team. Do you know some of these guys? George Beverly Shea, who sings with a deep voice. Anybody know George Beverly Shea? Yes, two more people know some folks I know. No, but this was his team. But here's what happened. Remember, Henrietta Mears, they get their ministry launched. Things are happening. Thousands are coming to faith in Christ. They got concerned. For every good work of God, there could be the counter work of the enemy. So they met in a place called Modesto, California, and they came up with the Modesto Manifesto. Go online sometime, look at the Modesto Manifesto. It is absolutely cool. There was four things they wanted to hold each other accountable to. So let me hit those real quick. The gold. In other words, yeah, they took up offerings. They had ministry needs, tents, people, this and that, right, equipment. When they took up the offering, an outside objective source always controlled the resources. Billion team never touched the gold. The second thing they drew the line in the sand on was the girls. You know why? Sometimes when the overseas ministry started to happen, they'd be gone three months from their wives. I can't be gone three days from my wife. Okay? So you start missing. And hopefully you don't drift. They're gone three months plus at times. So they made a thing. They will never, ever, period, regardless, meet with a gal alone. Drew the line in the sand. The gold, the girls, the glory. What about the glory? You ever hear like, oh, those are evangelistic statistics. 82,000 got saved and there was only 40,000 people who came. Well, they always let objective outside sources tell the story. And then one of my favorite ones is the gospel. That they'd be pure to the gospel and they would always partner with churches in their crusade ministry. Why? They know Jesus said, I'll build my church not crusade evangelism. So they partnered and they connected. Friends, this is just beautiful stuff. That is what sustained the Billy Graham ministry for how many years? We're talking seven years. He died at this beautiful age of 99. A man of integrity because he embraced accountability and uh, that team stayed pure. So that's a gift. So what do we say to accountability Let me, or to unity? Let me show you John 17. And please, if you're familiar with this verse, great. But please don't take this verse lightly. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, this is the final hours before Calvary, before crucifixion. He says, Father, may they all be one as you, Father, and I are in me and I am in you. May they also be one in us so the world may believe you sent me. I have given them glory you have given me. May they be one as we are one. 
I am in them and you are in me. May they be made completely one. Here's why. So the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Why unity? It testifies of the unity of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why unity? So the world, looking on at Christians, would say, wow. They have a community that is unsurpassed. The world will say, wow, I can see that the Father sent the Son. Why? Because they're unified as the Trinity is unified. It is a powerful testimony. In fact, one of the most important testimonies. In a day and age where the church gets criticized so much because there's so much Corinthian stuff happening. Pray for unity, as Jesus did. Work for unity. Embrace the diversity. Embrace the accountability. Those are the tests of discipleship. Now, finally, disciple-making churches prioritize corporate worship. Look at verse 7. So now we're in Troas. We're spending seven days. Remember, they're on a mission trip. They're heading to Israel to provide the resources during famine. We're in Troas for seven days. Notice what verse 7 says. On the first day of the week, we assembled to do what? To break bread. This is one of the clearest New Testament references to say that the church began to move from Shabbat, Friday at 5, to Saturday 5, Sabbath worship, to Sunday worship. The first day of the week is Sunday. It's Resurrection Day, and there's a lot of other cross-references to that. 1 Corinthians 16, uh, Revelation chapter 1, and so forth. And so, um, what's the heart of... The early church, the heart of the early church is worship. Now, friends, we are living in a difficult day in Christianity, so let me just highlight a few things. Number one, uh, just recently this happened. This is the first time in North America that church membership is under 50% since we've been tracking the data. We are down significantly, as you can see, from 73 to 47% who say they are members at a church. It is just a slippery slope uh, as we're in this postmodern, post-Christian culture. Secondly, how about COVID? Some of you have wondered, we've talked about this. COVID hasn't been a friend to the church. The data today nationally in America is that 20 to 30% who once attended church before COVID are no longer attending. That breaks our heart. You know, keep reaching out, keep encouraging um, COVID, hopefully we're, we're past, right? Let's, let's try to nurture those who were once in fellowship. But here was the greatest thing. Christianity Today wrote an article. Let me highlight it for you. Empty pews are an American public health crisis. And I'm just going to read something that the article stated. It's a documented pattern in our society that people find spiritual. They find social. They find personal lives improved, blessed, and supported through and in the local church. Take the local church away, they're suggesting it's a real health crisis. We felt it, right? We felt the hurt of isolation. We felt the hurt of apartness. We felt the hurt of separation. And as we prayed to regather and reconnect, boy, it's so different just just being in community again. So they prioritize worship. Let's do the same. Two things, and then we will uh, celebrate communion as part of worship. So worship by receiving the word. Look at verses 7 through 12. 
And this, again, to me, the details are pretty remarkable with Luke. So on the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. Paul spoke to them. And since he was about to depart the next day, he extended his message until midnight. Aren't you glad we'll be done by quarter to 11? I mean, here he is, you know, preaching literally through the late hours. And then Luke gives this detail. It's almost like a... It's not humorous because the guy died, but um, there were many lamps in the room. So it's getting hot upstairs where we were assembled. A young man named Eutychus, probably a new believer, right? The church was just starting. He's sitting on a windowsill. He sank into a deep sleep as Paul kept on speaking. So picture it, you guys. You're, you're kind of just became a Christian. You're listening to the great apostle Paul. You're on the window. Here's what happens. When he was overcome by sleep, you ever fall asleep during preaching? Yeah, yeah, oh, thanks, yeah, this guy over here. Um, overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story, was picked up dead. Remember, Luke's a physician. He diagnosed this guy, he's dead, finished. So what happens, Paul went down, fell on him, embraced him and said, don't be alarmed, for his life is in him. After going upstairs, breaking bread and eating, Paul, notice this again, conversed a considerable time until when? Dawn. So let's say the sun's coming up at 6 a.m. We're talking about like a 12-hour with Paul. Preaching, teaching, small group, just going all in. Now here's the question we have to ask. What's Paul thinking? Paul's a, a good communicator, right? He's, he's a good preacher. He knows his audience. I mean, how, how long can he stay? Can he sit there like 40 minutes, 35, 25? Some people check out in 15 minutes, Right? This guy goes to midnight, there's the incident, guy gets healed, he comes back, hey, another six hours? Yeah, let's go. And you think I'm long-winded. I hope not. So the question I had to ask is, why did Paul do that? Here's why, guys. It's real simple. Seven days in Troas, the church just got planted. He knew he would not be back. He says, I have one opportunity to minister to this baby church. He went all in. He stayed up to midnight. He stayed up to sunrise. He went all in. And so did the body of Christ. Man, that's powerful stuff, right? So I had asked the question as I look back after a few years of pastoral ministry, have I ever had someone fall asleep in church? Just fall asleep, not out of a window and die. Just fall asleep. Can I say this to you, Westwood Church? You're pretty good. I, I don't see a lot of dozers and all this stuff. But in, in our previous ministry, it was uncanny. Second service, gentleman in the back. He just did the head tilt 90 degrees. <laughs> Honestly, goodness. I mean, do you think the kids were a distraction? The dude was, he just, and I said, you know, maybe just, you know, had a, had a tough week or didn't get a good night's rest or whatever the deal was, he got his Sabbath rest during my preaching. Have at it. So what I want to say about falling asleep in church, that really doesn't bug me. If you need, need a nap, fine, I've done it. I think godly people do fall asleep in church. I think Eutychus probably had a good heart. Hey, if you need a nap, go ahead. Here's what I would like to suggest. You can fall asleep physically, but please don't fall asleep spiritually. And that's during the singing, during the preaching, during communion, during the fellowship. Lean in. Do your best, right? We cut each other slack. We want to be a, a grace and truth church. But boy, oh boy, that could happen to any one of us. 
Um, and so I think that's, that's just a mini highlight from there. And so they were all in. Paul says, I get one shot. I'm just going to give you the word. They received the word as best they could. Less than ideal. You know, if I was there, <clears throat> 9, 10 o'clock, I'm done. I'm comatose. Midnight, see you, Paul. Wee hours of the morning, I'm just waking up, all right? But these folks said yes. We have to commend them. And then finally, worship by celebrating communion. And this is beautiful because there's two patterns here. One is receiving the word. The second one is um, on the first day of the week, we assembled to do what? To break bread. And so can I encourage you? Um, these are just basic practices of the New Testament church. It's why we keep the Bible front and center. It's why we at West Wind once a month celebrate communion, the death, burial, and resurrection. And so this morning, we're going to close by celebrating communion. So let me pray. And hopefully you received this. There should be one on your seat. And let's, uh, let's just prepare to, um, to celebrate. Let me pray. Father, open our hearts now to you. You've done such great things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we bless you for that. We thank you for common elements like bread and juice that represent something so uncommon that God would die for us. So Jesus, we come as worshipers. We come hearing and receiving your word. We also come with a great appreciation that you were broken for us, that you gave for us so we could overcome our brokenness and be made new in Christ. And so now, Lord, as we reflect on these elements, the significance of it, and we worship you through communion, uh, be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.